Thank you for joining us on Community Focus, where we look at the issues that matter and the people and organizations that are making a difference. We're continuing our series on mental health during Mental Health Awareness Month. And we've talked about the ongoing impact of the pandemic on people's mental health. We've talked about suicide, how to recognize when someone needs help, where to get that help. What we have not discussed yet and we're going to talk about today is when mental health problems, not due to brain chemistry, not something situational like the pandemic or the loss of a loved one, but what happens to someone who experiences TBIs, traumatic brain injuries. And for that, I'm very happy to welcome back Dr. Isaac Torgeman, professor of doctoral psychology program at Albizu University and a specialist in TBIs. Dr. Torgeman, great to have you back on the program. Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I guess this falls under Mental Health Awareness Month, but it's also something that can happen to anyone at any time, a trauma-related brain injury. What are some of the circumstances? You know, we hear about it with football players, but average people can also undergo trauma-related brain injuries. What are some of the circumstances where that might happen? Uh, Yes. Uh, Some people even regard this as like this silent pandemic that anyone is susceptible to. As a clinician, I do see athletes that experience mild traumatic brain injuries, which are called concussions. But I also see uh, your typical person that has endured such injuries. Some of the main factors oftentimes are ground level falls, individuals that are just in a standing position, walking, and all of a sudden experience a sudden fall can result in significant injury to the head and brain. Motor vehicle accidents are also a big culprit. Uh, A lot of my patients have a significant history for motor vehicle collisions, motorcycle collisions, and these can result in significant injuries to the brain and the head. So I would say those are my two most common uh, etiologies uh, or causes of brain injury. Sports concussions also present in a significant number, but I would say ground level falls and motor vehicle collisions and accidents are definitely my highest occurring with the greatest frequency. What about children and bicycles? You know, we went through the whole thing where it became mandatory to wear a helmet. Same thing for motorcycle riders. Is the helmet helping? Well, the helmet does help and reduce injuries to the skull in the sense of skull fractures and lacerations. But uh, I do want to clarify, a traumatic brain injury is a sudden injury that damages the brain. And this can come from a blow, an external force, but it's not only when there's an external force acting on the brain. It can also happen from sudden acceleration and deceleration forces. So sometimes individuals that may not have a scar or cut on their head or fracture may still experience a traumatic brain injury. And so the helmets do help. They definitely do make a difference, but individuals can still experience a concussion or a mild uh, traumatic brain injury while wearing a helmet. Okay. Now, we've heard a lot about the NFL and also in wrestling. We see these people who get banged around a lot and they end up having early onset dementia or there are suicides. Is that part of the correlation with a traumatic brain injury? So specifically with the athletes, uh, when they have multiple concussions over time, 
Uh, some of them can actually advance to having what's called chronic traumatic encephalopathy, uh, CTE for short, and it mimics some of the aspects associated with other dementias that are well known, such as Alzheimer's and others. Uh, but it's its own unique diagnosis. Now, not every athlete gets this. I've had the chance to evaluate many ex-professional athletes, and not every athlete presents with this, but it is something of significance. Now, in regards to mental health and emotional factors, whenever you have a traumatic brain injury, it is very typical for the patient to get into this hypersensitive state in which lights sounds, overwhelmed their senses, but also emotions. So they get irritable more easily. They experience crying spells. It's difficult to modulate and manage their emotions as they're used to doing. And that's across all brain injuries. Now, those that are milder tend to have a shorter duration and less severity, while others that are moderate to severe will have greater duration and greater severity. Is there a way to know if someone has suffered a traumatic brain injury, if, say, you weren't there and didn't see something happen and now a loved one is just acting a little bit differently, you know, what can you look for to see if someone has a TBI? Okay, so the number one diagnostic feature would be imaging. So a CT scan would show you if there's been any significant injury to the brain primarily if the injury was moderate to severe, because sometimes mild injuries do not show up on imaging. But a CT scan would be ordered to see if there's been any uh, skull fractures or what we call hemorrhages or hematomas, essentially bleeding in the brain, that would result in the changes described. Now, as far as things that you would look at within the individual, changes in their behavior, maybe being more impulsive, like I said, more sensitive to stimuli, maybe more difficulty modulating their emotions. Processing speed oftentimes decreases. They may have difficulties with short-term memory and concentration. Balance, dizziness, and headaches are all signs of a brain injury. Is this something, if someone experiences a TBI, is it considered a permanent injury or are there treatments that are available to help the symptoms, if not help cure the problem? Well, the answer is a little bit more complex than a yes or no. So first of all, it depends on severity. So with mild traumatic brain injury, the great majority of patients do recover. Now, this recovery can be anywhere from a few days to a few months. And typically, we don't diagnose post-concussive disorder until three months after the injury. Now, again, the great majority of individuals do recover, but there are some that have chronic difficulties even after a mild traumatic brain injury. With moderate to severe cases, you typically do expect chronic difficulties. Now, again, it'll vary from patient to patient depending on the initial injury, severity, as well as the hospital course, and if there's any other conditions caused by the injuries, as well as initial medical stability. Now, having said that, there are treatments for such individuals. When it comes to concussions or mild traumatic brain injury, the first treatment I would say is education, educating patients as to what's going on with their bodies and what they can expect, being able to manage the situation, because oftentimes I've had patients that reintegrate into their lives too quickly. So they have a head injury, experience what we call a change in mental status, such as feeling a little bit slowed, maybe a bit disoriented, and then it subsides, 
and then they go back to work the next day or within that week or go back to school. And then all of a sudden, their symptoms come back. So it's really important to follow up with a doctor if it is identified and make sure that even if you are feeling better, your process of getting back to your life is something that is managed. With individuals, oftentimes physicians will prescribe medications to aid with different cognitive functions, ranging from perception, cognition, to emotional regulation. So sometimes patients are prescribed medications for depression, anxiety, and behavioral modulation. Uh, we also want to make sure that we identify any seizure activity. Typically, if the seizure happens closer to the time of the injury, it has a better prognosis than if it happens later on. So a lot of these patients are put on anti-epileptics or seizure medication prophylactically, meaning to prevent any seizures from occurring. Okay. If someone is living with a person who's sustained a TBI, what do they need to know as far as caregiving, helping the person cope with whatever treatment they're going through and helping them deal with the fact that at least for a period of time, they may not be their full selves. They may not be 100 percent. Okay, so one of the main things is to be an active participant in their therapies. I should have mentioned that physical therapy, occupational therapy, and especially speech and language pathology are very much involved in the rehabilitation of such individuals. So going to some of these appointments whenever possible and getting trained on some of the techniques and interventions in order to facilitate some of these things when they're not in front of the clinician can be helpful. But there are resources available. Organizations such as the Brain Injury Association of America, uh, the Brain and Spinal Cord Organization of Florida, and many other resources in the community do provide information and also connect the patients and family members to resources. There are support groups in multiple institutions, such as in hospitals, university, and outpatient clinics. And uh, nowadays, online, through social groups and as well as through these same organizations I've mentioned, patients can connect to other individuals as well as caregivers can connect to other caregivers. It's very important to know that you're not alone. Uh, injuries can have a very, very isolating effect, which augments any mental health issues that are present. Typically, signs of isolation, withdrawal are not a good sign when it comes to prognosis. So we try to be mindful of that and get our patients as active as their bodies and brains will allow. What are some techniques that people can do to prevent uh, or reduce risk factors for a TBI? Okay, so uh, like you said before, wearing a helmet if you bicycle, that can definitely reduce the severity and sometimes even the incidence, uh, especially on a motorcycle that would be indicated. Wearing your seatbelt in the car, although legally mandated, a lot of people still don't wear it because uh, some may complain it's uncomfortable or for whatever reason, but having a seatbelt can definitely reduce the severity or even incidence of such injuries. And just being mindful of surroundings, uh, sometimes things like slip and fall can happen when someone is distracted or walking on uneven surfaces. Typically, slip and fall situations I see more in the older population. So for such individuals, having some level of supervision and making sure their environment is free of any obstacles or reducing the need to manage steps and things of that sort. What's interesting in the young individuals and children and babies, some of the 
the more often seen causes of injury can even be abuse. So being mindful if anyone observes or suspects such situations to inform the appropriate authorities. And as clinicians, we always want to be mindful that when we're evaluating patients, we're assessing for such things. Yeah, I've seen stories where babies a couple of months old die because a parent who is obviously unfit was shaking the child to make it stop crying or for whatever reason, and the brain just basically stopped functioning. I guess that would be the ultimate in a traumatic brain injury. So that gets into another whole aspect of mental health and what causes people to be abusers. And we're not going to get into that today. We've talked about traumatic brain injury. I understand there's something called acquired brain injury. What is the difference between those two? Acquired brain injury is the general term, and traumatic brain injury is a specific type of acquired brain injury. So under the the category of acquired brain injury, you also have stroke, you have infection or toxic uh, situations that can result in uh, brain changes. So acquired brain injury is any um, brain damage caused after the person's born, not due to congenital or genetic difficulties, and is also not considered to be degenerative in nature. So things like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, or other dimensions wouldn't be under that category. But stroke is? Yes, stroke okay. is a type of acquired brain injury. Okay, got it. Seizures, I guess that would also be something. The seizures can be its own diagnosis, and sometimes it can be a symptom. And again, in traumatic brain injuries and acquired brain injuries in general, we're always trying to assess for seizure activity. If someone suspects that someone they're with has experienced a brain injury and that person has not discussed it, how do they get them to go to a doctor? Do they take them to an emergency room, neurologist? What's the first place to go for help? If you suspect that it's recent, I would go to the emergency room because that's where they have the resources to do imaging and assess the patient to see if there's any critical situation. There's something called a chronic bleed in which initially the individual may not necessarily exhibit significant decline, but over time start getting worse. And that's because sometimes there may be a, a small, a slow bleed in the brain that over time gets worse. And so if it's identified and there is a significant injury suspected, I would say go to the emergency room. If we're talking about that it's happened years ago or months ago, then I would go to a neurologist, an outpatient visit, to be assessed for symptoms and any possible changes. Okay. This is so enlightening. Is there a place that you would recommend to look for information about traumatic brain injuries? Well, the best place are the organizations such as the Brain Injury Association of America. That would be one of the best places for resources. And as far as uh, communicating with other individuals uh, on the Internet, I would say that there are social groups set up for that, which is something that you can search. And in your local hospitals and clinic uh, also have resources available to patients. Okay. Thank you so much for all of this information. I do want to mention, I understand Albizu is holding its first annual Excellence in Psychology Conference this coming Thursday, the 26th. It is free, open to the public in person or virtually, and we'll put that info on our events listing on our website. Dr. Isaac Turgeman, you're just so clear in explaining everything. I so appreciate it. Professor, Doctor of Psychology Program at Albizu University and 
a specialist in TBIs. Can someone call you if they want more information or reach out to you by email? Uh, yes, I would be more than happy. Uh, and so uh, if you have any questions, uh, you can always reach out to me at either my email here at the institution or I also am a clinician in the community. So either one of those contact information uh, can be provided. So, yes. Excellent. And that's albisu.edu. Thank you so very much. And we will definitely speak again. Well, always a pleasure. And I look forward to engaging in dialogue regarding these very, very important matters uh, regarding mental health and overall well-being. Absolutely. For our next segment of Community Focus, we are looking at Zoo Miami, one of our most treasured attractions. For one thing, it boosts tourism and brings money into the economy and employs people. The zoo also has extensive programs geared toward educating both children and adults about animals and the importance of conservation. So we are thrilled to have back with us Ron McGill, Communications Director and Zoo Goodwill Ambassador, to talk about some of these programs. Ron, great to talk to you again. Always a pleasure speaking with you, Alan. Thanks so much for the invitation. All right. So let's start with summer camps because I know they fill up pretty quickly. Kids are going to be out of school soon. What kind of programs do you have planned for them this year? Oh, there's so many different programs. There's kind of themed weeks, okay? Like, uh, you know, there's the Creepy Crawlers Week where kids can go in there and learn about invertebrates and insects, things like that. You know, there's the Wild at Art where kids can go in and paint and make all kinds of wonderful art projects that have to do with animals. There's another week that's a scale, feathers and furs, where you talk about reptiles and birds and mammals and the differences. And the great thing is you have the zoo to go out and experience it. The zoo is your camp. You know, it's not like you just go into a classroom or you're staying in a ball field or something like that. You're going out into the zoo. The zoo is your camp. You're able to apply all these wonderful things in a fun way to make you learn a little bit more, appreciate a little bit more about the wildlife. So it varies. You know, there's even a shark week they have during one of the camp work. So we don't have sharks here at the zoo, but we'll talk about sharks and we'll give you some great comparisons. We do have some great fish out here in some of the aquariums. So we'll talk about that also. I want to be a child again and come to camp. Um, yeah. And, but I know you have programs also for adults. You know, there's the Feast with the Beast. And isn't there an overnight that you do? There is. Uh, yeah, there's a big cat nap. Big Cat Nap is a program where you have a sleepover. You actually can come out, bring out your sleeping bag, and they have a sleepover. That kind of went on hiatus there for a while with COVID, but I think yeah. it's coming back now very soon. So all those programs are coming back where you get to come out here, you sleep overnight, you have pizza and popcorn, you tell some great stories, you go out and see the zoo at night, which is really cool. Yeah. Because sometimes things that you don't see or hear at night, like at night you'll hear the lions. You kind of go out there and you'll be walking, you hear, oh, oh my God. <laughs> because they'll call at night like that. And you'll see, it makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. It's fantastic, you know? You'll see the bats. We have so many bats that fly around the zoo at night, and you see them. It's fantastic to see how the zoo comes alive at night. A lot of the nocturnal animals will be a lot more active. Oh, that is just amazing. You know, we've talked about how people connect with animals. This is Mental Health Awareness Month, and there's scientific evidence that we've talked with the folks from canine-assisted therapy dogs. Mm -hmm. And sure. there is science that says when a human and a dog look each other in the eye, it increases your feel-good hormones, your endorphins, the serotonin levels increase. Is it the same with other animals? Do people get a positive reaction that helps their mental health? Absolutely. Now, it depends, of course, on the animal, you know, and it depends on the person. For some people, for instance, they have a horrific phobia about a snake. If they see a snake, it doesn't really relax them. It makes them really, really tense until we can teach them why it shouldn't. 
I've had people that at the sight of a snake start sweating and actually start crying. But once I'm done showing them and demonstrating to them why they don't have a reason to be, they become immersed in wonder about the animal. You know, what we need to do, Ellen, is we need to teach people not to be afraid of animals. We need to teach people how to respect animals. And if you respect them properly, you won't have a reason to be afraid of them. But certainly looking at an animal eye to eye creates a connection that oftentimes can be incredibly relaxing. There's so many service animals, service dogs, service horses that show with kids, autistic children, for instance, they see what a huge difference it can make in just making that connection in the overall behavior of the child. So it is wonderful. And what's amazing is how these animals seem to know how to act differently with different kids. Yes. You just reminded me of the service peacock that someone brought to Fort Lauderdale Airport once. But again, you know, people have their connections. Um, you know, I had a friend whose mother had sugar gliders and she would yes. carry them in a little pocket in her shirt everywhere she went because they were like her babies. Well, the trouble is the sugar gliders. I'm telling you what, though, they might have been babies. But once those things become sexually mature, they turn into little monsters. Oh, they have claws. They, they do have claws. Oh, that, they, they have teeth. <laughs> they, forget the claws. They'll start. They'll, you'll see in the start. They make this. They go. And they start tearing you up, man. You got to be careful with those sugar gliders, let me tell you. (laughs) I'm going to stick to cats and dogs for my pets. Thank you. Okay. Now, as far as the conservation goes, that's a huge thing. You've got a Wild Bunch conservation program. What are you trying to teach people with that? The Wild Bunch is a wonderful group here of young professionals, you know, young attorneys, young successful professionals that have created this group that basically supports the zoo by doing fundraisers to support certain projects here at the zoo. They help improve exhibits. There may be an enrichment program they start to improve on. They contribute to all kinds of efforts here at the zoo. They bought a new smart board, like for the animal hospital. So they have a great communications tool there. So the Wild Bunch is just a bunch of really great, passionate young professionals who come together, again, like-minded. They have these wonderful social gatherings, you know, at breweries and different types of venues where they can socialize, have fun, eat, drink, and at the same time, raise money to help with the conservation efforts here at the zoo. So that's a wonderful group in and of itself. Most certainly. And of course, you do programs to teach about conservation. I have to ask you about our iguana issue. Oh, I oh, happen Lord, to, I'm fascinated by them. I look at them and I see dinosaurs just, you know, millions of years later. But I know that they're not native and they encroach on our territory. What's your take on that? What can we do? Is there anything we can do? Uh, You know, there really isn't a whole lot we can do other than hopefully learn from this lesson and realize that exotic animals, first of all, don't make good pets. And that when you realize they don't make a good pet, you shouldn't just let them go. You're not doing them a favor. You're not doing the environment a favor. Well, first of all, it's illegal. You should never, it's illegal to introduce any non-native species into the environment or to release a non-native species in the environment. But beyond that, it's just, it's harmful, not just to ourselves, but many times to the animal itself. The only thing we can hope for, Ellen, I know this is going to sound kind of cruel, is some kind of extended freeze. And unfortunately, with with global warming, that doesn't seem to be something that's going to happen anytime soon. Um, You know, we are seeing animals now that are actually adapting to predating on iguanas. I saw a raccoon go and kill and eat an iguana. Oh, my gosh. Which was like, you know, that's showing me an adaptation. And I think we're going to see more of that. We're going to see, you know, we had a bald eagle that we rescued and rehabilitated, Mm -hmm. and we taught it to love iguanas. This thing hunted iguanas, loved iguanas. So when we released it back into the wild, we have a predator there that's going to be eating iguanas. And I think that's going to be what happens. Eventually, there are going to be some native animals that are going to adapt to 
eating iguanas because bottom line is iguanas are a good source of protein. You know, some countries in Central America farm them. People eat them as a delicacy. So the fact of the matter is there are animals, they're a source of protein. I think there'll be some animals that adapt to predate on them, but I don't see anything that's going to really eliminate the population anytime soon. And it's something that we're going to be living with for a while, unfortunately, because they, they can be very destructive, even though I understand it's not their fault. Right. But the bottom line is they don't belong here. But it is fascinating when you talk about the other animals adapting, because that really, the yes. earth has a way of correcting itself. Which is, You're correct, you yes. know, that people won't like my saying this, but I think COVID was a way of the earth correcting itself for overpopulation oh. at the heartbreaking loss of so many people. But again, I think that is part of nature. Let me add to that a little bit, Ellen, and this is going to make some people uncomfortable, but just listen to what I'm saying. I want you to look at the last several pandemics that we've had, whether it be AIDS, whether it be Ebola, whether it be COVID, where did they all start? They started from animals. They started from animals that were taken out of their natural environment, forests that were cut down, animals that were sold in markets, and basically you're opening Pandora's box. Mm. You know, the earth is very, very carefully balanced. Nature is balanced. It is fragile. When we alter it as abruptly as we have in so many places, we are opening that Pandora's box where you had a natural seal to contain some of these viruses, some of these pandemics. Oh. Uh, you've opened it up. You've exposed it, you see. And the earth is teaching us a lesson that you go into these areas and you start removing things from those areas and that don't belong outside where you're bringing them. You start introducing things that can become very, very dangerous. And, and I believe it is a lesson that we should learn yeah. that we cannot continue to just rape and pillage the earth in such a way that we are releasing these very dangerous parts. Of, of our planet. And, you know, we can see that it doesn't affect just humans. What about when humans are polluting the waters and we have whales beaching themselves? Or, oh, absolutely. Right. So it's the same thing yeah. where animals may start dying in mass because of something <laughs> that we've done. Absolutely. And Ellen, what people need to understand is this, whether you like animals or despise animals, listen to what I'm saying. You know, whether it be the bees that pollinate the plants that provide us with fruits and vegetables, whether it be the coral reefs that, you know, filter the waters, protect our shorelines, whether it be the, the, the Amazonian forests that produce air that we breathe and the medicines that treat us, we are all connected. Wildlife does not recognize political boundaries. They don't carry passports. The Earth is really tiny. You know, astronauts said it best when they look at the Earth from space, they realize how tiny and fragile it is. By us protecting these wild animals, these wild places, we're protecting ourselves because we've all heard about the canary in the coal mine, okay? How when the, the coal miners, before they went down, they would lower canary in a cage. Mm -hmm. And if the canary came back up and it was dead, it was telling them, listen, it's toxic down there. And the canary was the only way they could find out because it's not a toxin you can smell, you couldn't taste it, you couldn't see it. It was invisible. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening on our planet where you have to understand. And I, I want to make it very clear. Extremism in any form is dangerous. I'm not one of those extremists. But a nonpartisan study just came out from the UN not too long ago that said if we continue on the trajectory that we are on right now when it comes to fossil fuels and the environmental destruction that we're going through, we're going to lose one million species of animals in the oh. next 50 years. In the next 50 years, half a century, that's less than my lifetime right now, we're going to lose one million species of animals. We need to understand that the canary and the coal mine are all these species that we are seeing 
being lost every year because of an accelerated problem. And again, I want to emphasize, extinction is a natural process. Animals became extinct way before man was even on Earth. What concerns me is this expedited rate of extinction that is caused by human activity. It's not natural. Extinction is natural. Let me make that very clear. You know, we went through an ice age, we went through the warming part, but what's happening now has never been documented at the rate it's happening, and that's what's scary. So what can we do? We need to change our lifestyle. It starts really with what we buy. Look at what you're buying. Look at things like palm oil. You know, if you've got palm oil in the foods, palm oil is the reason for so much destruction of so many forests throughout Asia, especially. It is incredible how destructive. And that is driven by our buying, you know, patterns of things. If we could stop looking, we start looking at products and say, listen, this has palm oil and it's not sustainable. I'm not going to buy this product. There are substitutes for all those things. We have to look at things like our use of fossil fuels, you know, more efficient vehicles, going into the electric vehicles, even though I realize electric vehicles have their own problems with the batteries and stuff like that. But it's still, I think, the better of two evils. Uh, We need to look at water conservation. You know, we need to realize we don't need to have a shower that runs for half an hour. When we wash our hands, we don't need to let the water run forever. We need to not use so many chemicals in our home, whether it be pesticides or whatever. All of these things add up. Plastics. Man, let me don't even get me started about bottled water. Mm. Why are we buying bottled water in South Florida? We have some of the best water, some of the best water treatment plants in the world here in South Florida. The water that comes out of your tap is perfectly fine. Don't buy bottled water and plastic. And if you're going to buy water that has to be from a store, buy it in a good recyclable metal, not this horrible plastic mm. that is just, my gosh, plastics are just unbelievable what they're doing to the earth. Yeah, I'm exactly. Very Every little bit helps. And when you do it in big numbers, it makes a big difference. Okay. It really does. It's not as difficult as people think. All right. Well, let's make that a challenge for our listeners to help ourselves, help our community, help maintain the planet by switching to metal, to reusable. There you go. Yeah. Okay. So before we go, I do want to talk about becoming a member of Zoo Miami. It's a way to support all of the work that you do, your environmental efforts, your conservation efforts, and the animal care that we're so fortunate to have a zoo that treats animals the way you do. How can we help and what do we get for being a member? Listen, the membership is the greatest deal in South Florida. You get a membership, uh, depending on the membership you get, whether you get a dual membership, you get a family membership, but you can come to the zoo all year long for free. It usually will pay for itself in just two visits to the zoo. And it's wonderful. You get discounts at the gift shop. You get special invitations to special events for members only. It really makes you part of the zoo family. You get the great publication. You get the e-magazine, the Keeping It Wild magazine. It gives you updates on everything that's happened. Great photographs in there all the time. But again, the biggest advantage is that you get to come to the zoo free all year long, whatever you want. You know, it's it's just a great, great benefit that, like you said, even if you don't have an altruistic bone in your body, if you want to just do something that's good for you, financially good for you, right. and you come to the zoo more than twice a year, a membership is the way to go. Okay. You can get that. You can get a guest pass with your membership to bring a friend with you. It's the best way to go. Okay. So ZooMiami.org is where you can do that. And you can also find out about the Zoo Miami Foundation, which does its own work on behalf of the zoo. You can also find about scholarships and grants that are provided through the Zoo Miami Foundation and your own endowment fund. What is the purpose of those grants? Well, I'll tell you what, you know, we have to invest, first of all, in our youth. 
So I created the Ron McGill Conservation Endowment here. It's the largest conservation endowment at the zoo. Every year I give away over $100,000 just to projects of animals in the wild. Not a penny of that money can be spent at the zoo. It only can be spent on protecting animals in the wild and providing scholarships for people who are dedicating their careers to conservation. There's a scholarship at the University of Florida for that, and there's a scholarship here at Zoo Miami that is given every year $5,000 to a high school student or a college freshman who is focused on becoming a conservation-minded individual in their career. We want to support that. That's important to me. That that conservation endowment is the single thing I'm most proud of in my entire career. Mm. It is my hope to be my legacy, and I want to be able to be able to know that, you know, if I die tomorrow, there'll always be thousands of dollars every year produced to that endowment that'll help protect animals in the wild where they belong. Just wonderful. And you can find information about how to apply, what are the requirements, et cetera, et cetera, all at zoomiami.org. Ron McGill, it is such a delight to talk to you again, Communications Director and Zoo Goodwill Ambassador with Zoo Miami. Always a pleasure speaking with you, Ellen. That goes both ways. And thank you for listening to Community Focus this morning. If you have questions about today's show or would like to suggest a topic, please feel free to email me at ellen.jaffe, J-A-2-F-1-E, at cmg.com. Join us again next Sunday for an all-new edition of Community Focus, and have a wonderful day. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.